is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Prince Harry's alleged wild ride through New York City will go in depth. We'll also get into why there are drug shortages now and what can be done to deal with them. Also, actress Jane Seymour using her celebrity status for a very good cause. She'll join us to talk about it. But we start with what is being called, at least by the uh, royal copy, uh, copies, <laughs> couple's spokesperson, a near-catastrophic car chase involving Prince Harry, his wife, Meghan Markle, and the paparazzi in New York. Larry McShane is a reporter covering this for the New York Daily News. Chris Melcher is an attorney here in L.A. who represents celebrities. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thanks for having me. Larry, let me uh, start off since you're there covering it in in New York. And as uh, being a New Yorker myself, I find the whole notion of a sort of wild, near catastrophic car chase through uh, Manhattan somewhat hard to swallow. Uh, am I swallowing badly? Well, I don't know. Uh, Mayor Adams is now saying it was more like 45 minutes. And then they uh, they turned up at a local police precinct. Uh, Harry and Meghan, and then it was somewhat resolved after that. So two hours might be a little long. But uh, a, a car chase, I think that's where we're we're running into the uh, burden of a car chase in uh, New York. Uh, with traffic the way it is, it would be like a car chase in downtown L.A. How do you get around the cars? <laughs> uh, well, it was 10 o'clock at night. It's the summertime, not as busy as it usually is. Uh, some of it happened on the FDR drive, which is uh, more of a freeway uh, than driving actually in city traffic. Is there a sense, though, there that there might be some some royal exaggeration? I haven't heard that. It was addressed by the mayor, um, who, other than the timeline, uh, was pretty, pretty specific about what happened and... Uh, he kind of chewed out the paparazzi a bit and said they need to learn how to behave in New York City. Uh, uh, Chris, let me ask you, uh, you're an attorney, you uh, represent celebrities. Uh, if Harry and Meghan were your clients, what would be the next step for them in New York? And then a follow up question, would it be different had it happened in California? Well, sure. I mean, in speaking to California, we have so much experience with these type of events happening before that we have a vehicle code section, which makes it a crime to interfere with the driver or follow too close or rec drive recklessly for the purpose of taking a photograph and, and selling it. Um, so that's been tested with uh, Justin Bieber, who was involved in a similar incident 11 years ago. And then we also have laws uh, protecting the privacy of celebrities when they're in a personal or family setting and the paparazzi invades their privacy or trespasses to get that photograph, they and the publisher can be sued. So those are the rights in in California. I'm not quite sure what they are in New York, but that would be the next step. What's difficult for this when we're counseling our clients is that we might be able to find out who the paparazzi is who took the photograph. Um, but a lot of times not. Uh, these these photographs are sold 
maybe resold. So we got to really trace it back to when it was published, who actually took that photograph, placed them at the scene, and then initiate legal action against them. Uh, Larry, of course, a lot of the interest in this story uh, is centered on the fact that uh, Harry's mother, you know, the late Princess uh, Diana, died because of a car chase through uh, the streets of Paris by paparazzi. So I'm wondering, when they arrived in New York City, do you have any any indication of what kind of security precautions might have been taken? And clearly they didn't work, or maybe they did work. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specifics. I do know that at some point, you know, they, they left in a, in a big black SUV. And uh, during the chase, they abandoned the SUV, got into a, a New York taxi cab, and were driven to the 19th precinct, which is where they spent the, uh, the end of their night. All right, uh, Larry McShane, reporter covering this for the uh, New York Daily News. Also, Chris Melcher, an attorney here in L.A. who represents celebrities. Right now, though, drug shortages in the U.S., they are reaching record levels. Now, this has thousands of patients very nervous, and it's very understandable. Dr. Bridget Groves is with the American Pharmacists Association. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So what sorts of drugs are not available or in short supply? And the bigger and more important question is why? We have seen over the past couple of months that quite a few medications have either gone into a shortage and have since resolved or have gone into a shortage and we're still not seeing that resolution quite yet. So you may have heard over the course of the past winter months that we saw some shortages in over-the-counter children's pain reliever products like acetaminophen or Tylenol, as well as some of the antibiotics, liquid ones in particular for our kiddos like amoxicillin. And over time, we've seen our manufacturers able to um, meet that increased demand, but we still are seeing shortages in some other products. And I know you mentioned what's the why. There's a whole host of reasons, but most commonly for some of those that I just named, it's because we've seen an increased demand from our patients and our public for those medications, and the manufacturing wasn't quite up to speed with that. And so we had a, a, dis, a disparate example between how much demand and how much supply we had in the marketplace. So why is demand up for like things like that? Great question. It just depends. In this case, um, for amoxicillin or some of the antibiotics, on occasion, we can have inappropriate prescribing. So somebody has a virus, like for example, COVID-19, it does not respond or get treated by an antibiotic like amoxicillin, but sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the symptoms that that patient has. And so they may be inappropriately prescribed an antibiotic in that case. Or we've also heard where individuals may um, think that they need to stock up on some medications just to have in case. And so especially with those over-the-counter products, we've seen individuals maybe taking more than they need just to have it. Um, and so some of that hoarding can actually negatively in- impact the amount that we have as available supply on stocking in the shelves. Now, am I correct that about 90% of prescription drugs that Americans take are generic and For those generic drugs, as I understand it, uh, most, if not almost all of the ingredients either come from India or China or other countries, or if the ingredients don't come, they're actually made in other countries. Is that playing into this? And what is the solution to it? Sure. We have manufacturers of medications, like you mentioned, the individual ingredients or the overall product, both here in the United States as well as in other countries. 
And it's important to know that that way, if there's a certain natural disaster or some other area or issue that happens in a geography, that, that hopefully the entire supply then isn't impacted. So it is valuable to have different places that make these types of products or put them final together. Um, it's also important to recognize that it's those are products are checked for quality assurance and, and quality control measures to make sure that they're safe, they're pure, they're effective, they're the right thing for our patients at the right time. So it is um, something that the FDA and NDA are also checking into to make sure that those products are done and made in the correct way. And a lot of those medications are generics, and generics are just as good as those brand name products. They treat effectively, they work well for our patients, and it's important to know that working with your doctor, working with your pharmacist to identify the best treatment and option for that patient. Maybe if there is something that's in a current shortage, we can switch to an alternative, or we could give a different strength and decrease the dose and the amount that that person takes at that time. So you mentioned that in most of the cases, the manufacturers have been able to ramp up production so that the, the supply shortage was resolved. Are there some medications that have not been able to be caught up yet? Yeah, it depends. There's certain manu- certain medications that there's only a few manufacturers that might make them. Um, we're seeing, for example, cancer medications. Um, we're having some more of those come to the surface lately that only a few places are making those. Or, um, and over the course of the, the winter months, we saw an um, albuterol for inhalation, something that a patient would use in a hospital via a nebulizer machine, um, a company that was making that suddenly um, stop making those. So so we do see that impact, but are working to assure that we're putting into place other manufacturers that can, can build up and to ramp up production as necessary so that we don't have that single source um, product. We allow and enhance the marketplace to have a couple of different manufacturers to have that balance of who has product available, as well as then being able to distribute that product across the country. So if a certain area has more of a product available, we can then transition and transfer it over to another area of a country that might need it because they don't have as much in that particular jurisdiction. All right, Dr. Bridget Groves uh, with the American Pharmacists Association. Thanks so much. So I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to hoard my supply of Tylenol and and ibuprofen and cough syrup. Thank you so much. There you go. Thanks. (laughs) Have a good one. So if I need like Tylenol, I have to come see me. Come see you. Yeah. And you are you going to jack up the price? Absolutely. That's what I thought. This is America. And still ahead, Jane Seymour is going to be with us. She will talk about how she's helping people who need it the most. Right now, though, health officials in L.A. and around the country are concerned about a resurgence of impox this summer. Dr. Timothy Brewer is a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how much is this concern? And uh, when we say there's there's concern about it, is it is it hair on fire or is it is it not to that point? So we're not at that point right now. Across the country, we're averaging about one or two cases a day in L.A. County. I think we've had two cases in the last month. So, but the concern is there was an outbreak in Chicago that was reported about two weeks ago, about 13 cases. So the the virus is still out there and it can spread if people are not careful. Well, let's talk then about the efficacy of the MPOX vaccine, right? Uh, so as I understand, it's about, what, 70% effective? Is that an accurate 
number? That's yeah, no, that's an excellent number. So that's for people who've had two doses. If you've only had one dose, it's about 37% effective. So very important to make sure you get your second dose of vaccine if you've only had one dose. But how do we know if the virus is not spreading as rampantly as it appeared to have been last year? How do we actually know the true efficacy of the vaccine? Very difficult to know. There's actually a, a study going on right now to try and try and figure that out. But what the CDC does is they tend to look at the rates of infection in individuals who have and have not been vaccinated. And right now, you're about 14 times more likely to get MPOX if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. All right. So uh, who's at risk? And if they are fully vaccinated, they got they got the two doses. What practical steps do they need to take? Sure. So the people who are most at risk are people who are engaging in high risk sexual behaviors. And right now, that's primarily among people who are having anonymous sex, particularly unprotected sex and large public events. Most of the cases have been concentrated in gay, bisexual men who have sex with men and transgender individuals. They account for about 80% of all the cases. And then people with HIV or sexually transmitted diseases are also at higher risk. So what preventative measures should people who fit into any of those profiles take now? Should they, should they all go running and getting this vaccine? Definitely. So the first and most important thing is to be vaccinated. Nationally, only about 23% of people at risk for MPOX have been vaccinated. We're a little better in California. About 39% of people have had two doses, but still a lot of room for improvement. Other than that, just don't go having anonymous, unprotected sex, particularly in large public events or in commercial sex venues. Is, is this virus then uh, at an endemic state? Well, it it's at a very low level in the community, but it certainly could increase if people engaged in risky behaviors that facilitated its spread. But it certainly has not gone away. And uh, what are what happens to you if you if you get mpox? So most people will be fine. You'll get a rash. You may have flu-like symptoms, fevers, myalgias. The, the real problem with MPOX is that there are data to suggest that people can spread it before they get sick. And then once you get the rash, it can take two to four weeks before that rash completely heals. And you're at risk for spreading the virus during that entire time. So you really have to be careful for several weeks that you don't give this to, to other individuals. And what about therapeutics? So we do have treatments. There are antiviral medicines, and we can use immunoglobulins as well. In general, we don't have good data on how well the treatment works, and there's actually uh, a trial going on for tecoviramat, which is the main treatment we use to see how well it does work. I, I have seen some stories about uh, allegedly the vaccine waning in its effectiveness, but we already discussed a bit earlier that it's hard to tell the efficacy of the vaccine. So how do we know whether or not it is waning in its effectiveness? 
So we're, we're still early on. There are tests you can do looking at immune responses, just like we do for vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But you're exactly right. So in that Chicago outbreak that I mentioned of 13 presumed cases, 12 definite, one probable, nine of those 13 people had been vaccinated. So the vaccine is not 100% effective but it will both reduce the risk of infection. And if you get infected, importantly, the risk of disease. And, and so if you're vaccinated you're, and you get impox, it's going to be a milder case, right? Probably be milder case. That's exactly right. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden heading to Japan, but before he left, he sounded optimistic the U.S. could avoid uh, debt default. Well, with us now is Grady Trimble, a Capitol Hill correspondent for Fox Business Network. Grady, thanks for being with us. Hey, Rob and Charles, good to be with you. So the president sounds more optimistic. Is that well-founded? I think so. We seem to sense a change in tone after yesterday's meeting on all sides. Um, both Speaker McCarthy and uh, House Majority Leader Chuck Schumer came out of that meeting yesterday, and they told us, the reporters gathered there at the White House, that they agreed that default is not on the table, which seems to be a change in the way they were speaking from just a few days ago when uh, Schumer, for example, kept saying we need to pass a clean debt ceiling bill. McCarthy said we have a bill in the House that we've already passed and the Senate should take it up. It now sounds like they're actually getting down to the details, even though they're not sharing exactly what they're talking about uh, behind closed doors. It sounds like they're getting down to the details and, and really starting to negotiate in earnest. Whether it's too late or not, we'll see. <laughs> It does sound like there might be a little uh, hint of compromise in the air, which would be odd in uh, Washington at this time of year. But uh, some on the far right are blasting uh, Kevin McCarthy for appearing to negotiate, and they're outright calling for, let's go into default. Let's trash the economy because that's, you know, uh, some people thrive on chaos. And then from the far left, uh, President Biden is getting a lot of pushback, saying you can't compromise with him. You can't compromise on these spending cuts because you're negotiating with terrorists and they'll only come back for more. So uh, is this, if they have reached some kind of compromise, is this going to be a situation where most people will be uh, okay with it or will most people hate it? Well, I think that what's the old adage about uh, negotiations is it's a good deal if both sides leave unhappy. I think that might be what happens in this case if they are able to, to reach a deal. You know, we're hearing that some of the air areas where there might be some wiggle room uh, on both sides are permitting reforms, clawing back unused COVID funds, budget caps for future spending. And then a, a big one that has been kind of the talk of the Hill today is work requirements for people who receive government benefits. President Biden indicated when he spoke today that he has some uh, leeway on on that, even though Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, said work requirements are a non-starter just yesterday, I believe that was. Um, but, you know, we're, we're starting to get a sense that they're they're. Is a you know they're talking, and, and I think they're talking in earnest 
for the first time uh, in this whole, whole ordeal. But, Grady, I'm curious, which side has more to lose, the Democrats or the Republicans? If the Republicans get any kind of compromise from the Democrats of, of cutbacks or, or future spending limitations, that sort of thing, yeah, they didn't get everything they wanted, but they can go to their voters and their base and say, well, we got some of what we said we were going to do, which is to cut back and, and to you know try to stem some of the government spending. On the other hand, you know, the president kind of boxed himself in a while ago, didn't he, by saying, you know, in no way are we going to, uh, you know, allow a discussion to even enter the, the, the picture about the cutbacks uh, in the same sentence as uh, the uh, the debt limit. So if he nego- negotiates and says, OK, we're going to give up some things here and we're going to uh, allow some cuts for him, it's an all loss, isn't it? You know, it's hard to pick a winner and a loser yet when we haven't yet seen any legislation uh, produced out of these negotiations. But you're right. The, the White House has stood firm on this idea that they're going to pass this quote unquote, clean debt ceiling bill. In other words, raise the debt ceiling so that we don't default without any commitments to future spending cuts or caps on future spending or any concessions at all. I think that was an unrealistic approach to go into these negotiations with. And to that end, I think Speaker McCarthy is going to be able to walk away and say, look what we got. We got these commitments from the White House in the form of a budget. And they said they weren't going to do this. And they've done it. That being said, to your point about the the progressives on the left and then the the farther uh, right uh, uh, members of Congress, I think no matter what deal is produced, there's going to be some pushback. The question is whether you have enough of those people in the middle on the left and the right in the House and the Senate to push through some legislation. And they're going to have to do it quickly. (laughs) That's the other thing is the timing of this. When do they reach a deal? And then can they get that deal through the House and the Senate in time to avoid a default? Uh, One more quick question before we run out of time. Uh, President Biden said he wasn't taking this idea off the table of invoking the 14th Amendment to uh, go around Congress if he had to, uh, as some on the left have been pushing him to do. And he he, uh, consciously uh, did not take that off the table. Did that affect the talks with Kevin McCarthy? Because it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that the tone changed after that made it out into the atmosphere. It may have, but I, and you're right, that idea is gaining steam among especially Senate Democrats. They're circulating a letter right now trying to get more uh, Democrats in the Senate to sign on to this idea of telling the president to invoke the 14th Amendment, which essentially says that defaulting is not uh, not constitutional. Um, so it would kind of skirt the House Speaker and uh, avoid a default without really having to negotiate. Um, you know, I think I, I'm not sure how serious that how seriously that's being considered. I really think the way that this concludes is that they do reach a deal. The president even indicated it today before he left for Japan for the G7 summit that he he's you know already canceled the other legs of that trip to Australia and Papua New Guinea, and he's going to be back here on Sunday. And he said he's going to hold a press conference on Sunday, and he hopes to have a deal to present. You don't say all of that if you think you're going to go ahead and invoke the 14th Amendment and skirt the the people you've been negotiating with. So I 
I think the most likely scenario is they reach a deal and then it goes to the House and Senate. And again, the timeline is going to be really tight on that to see if they can do it before June 1st. All right. Thank you. Grady Trimble, Capitol Hill correspondent for Fox Business Network. Now, Rob has been in, in love with actress yes. Jane Seymour for a very long mm-hmm. time. How old were you when you first? Uh... Oh, gosh, that was 1978. Oh, you're, you're... And I'm not going to give the age. No, no, but OK. So uh, <laughs> when we come back, He's a young man. Yeah, but when, when she comes back, Jane Seymour is going to uh, join us and tell us how she's using her fame to help others. Jane Seymour, you got to love her, has been a Hollywood star for decades, from Bond Girl to Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, to much, much more than that. And uh, also uh, charity work. She has uh, co-founded the Open Hearts Foundation. They're hosting a big gala this weekend in Malibu. Uh, Jane Seymour with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Yes, we're very excited. Um, Yep. Tell us about this gala and and what is this charity for? What does Open Hearts do? Well, we've had the foundation now for, I think, 11 years. And um, many people might be aware of this sort of image that I have of two hearts that are open, that connect. And there was a whole jewelry line and and a lot of artwork and um, uh, sculptures from it. But really, basically, it was inspired by my mother's story. She said that everyone in life has challenges. And she survived three and a half years in the Japanese concentration camp in Indonesia during World War II. And she said that when you are, when you when you're in a crisis that you close off your heart and you don't let anyone know what you're dealing with but if you can accept which is the hardest thing to do in life and open your heart and reach out to help someone else you have purpose and when you have purpose in your life you are able to heal at the same time as helping other people heal so in her honor we came up with a foundation where what we did is honored and um, supported financially and publicly um, organizations that were either founded by or majorly supported by people who have been through the kind of challenge where they saw that there was a major need that wasn't being met in either in their environment, in their place, part of the world, or just generally. And uh, so we, we, we curate those different organizations, and every year we raise money and awareness for their organizations. And usually the organizations then have their local people double and sometimes triple our donations. So it's um, it, it's really as much as anything, it's uh, empowering them and um, and letting them you know be seen even within their own community. Um, since COVID, we really focused a lot on women and children's issues. A lot of foster... What's going to happen Oh, we're, we're going to have an unbelievable gala at the Calamigos Ranch. If you go to openheartsfoundation.org, it's not too late. You can still get a ticket. Um, we will uh, be having the most amazing dinner and entertainment. We'll have the stories. We are honoring Jean-Charles Boisset and uh, his wife, Gina Gallo, of the Gallo family. They've been incredibly uh, philanthropic. And uh, this is our first humanitarian award that we're doing with them. Um, and uh, we will also be having uh, Brenna Whitaker and um, Jared Lee. They're all performing. It's going to be an amazing evening, Calamigos Ranch. And then for benefactors, people that have bought the benefactor package, um, they will be coming the night before to my home in Malibu for another dinner and performance. Uh, But the main event is on the 20th. It's on Saturday. We still have a few seats left. And um, we also have an amazing uh, live auction and silent auction. Hmm. And uh, so anybody that wants to be involved, see what we're doing, support us. If they can't even come, okay. they'll still be supporting us by doing that. But uh, good stuff. You no, know, it's 
Uh, uh, Jane, I, wa- I wanted yeah. to ask you very quickly, uh, are we going to see you on the screen again? Very, yes, very. Uh, you are at the moment, if you can look for it. It's on Acorn Television, um, which is a sub- subscription television. It's under the uh, umbrella of AMC. It's called Harry Wild, and I play Harry. I play a... Um, you play Harry? Yep. I play Harry. She's a professor of English literature in the University Trinity University in Dublin, and uh, she quits and ends up inadvertently becoming a private investigator using her uh, knowledge of uh, literature and history. And her sidekick is a 16-year-old um, uh, young black kid from um, Dublin. Right. Who she meets um, through being mugged, but then wow. she realizes he's actually a good guy who needs an education. So while the two of them are solving crimes, which right. the, the you know the the cops are not very good at, um, <laughs> the two of she's actually educating at the same time. It's hey, very Jane, we're going to run out of time, but I, I do want to ask you very quickly about yes. because as you of course well know, you know Hollywood is in the middle of a writers' guild strike and SAG-AFTRA, which is a union that I'm sure you belong to. Uh, are supporting them. What's your take on what's going on in Hollywood now? Well, I mean, it's it's a very frightening time, I think, um, because I think AI is a very big issue here too. Um, and I don't know how everything is going to be solved, but clearly, you know, we all need to unite and we need to come up with um, something that makes some sense because a lot of people, I mean, the whole of, uh, the whole of Hollywood really mm. depends upon... Um, you know what we do for a living on yeah. on making movies and television and and um, you know I think unique writers and unique performing you know it doesn't matter how robotic they can get that there is something about <laughs> the human spirit that yeah. hopefully will never disappear from our existence and uh, you know we we can't we can't as actors make movies unless something great is written you gotta have so words that's gotta have the words yeah. and um, and really, the only way we can impact people emotionally is through drama. You know, that's how how people actually care about things. They yeah, watch right. a movie or television series and they go, they are emotionally impacted by it. And then they think twice about it. And, All right. Uh, uh, Jane Seymour, important. thank you so much for taking some time to join us. Uh, we do appreciate it. And uh, check out that gala and check out the uh, website for the Open Hearts Foundation. Speaking of AI. Yes, uh, that's right. We have a uh, forum here, a town hall Tomorrow on KNX, it's going to be live with an audience at uh, 4 o'clock uh, to 5. It's also going to live stream if you like to, to watch us, and who wouldn't? Yeah, but you got to be there in person if you get a chance, because some interesting things are going to be happening. going to have some special guests there. Yeah, I think we still have some free seats available. Yeah. If you go to our, our website at KNX, uh, you can just click on the uh, logo for the show, mm-hmm. and it will tell you what you need to do to get a free ticket to attend if you want. All right, that's it for KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.